The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Thank you for being here tonight. You'll notice that the title for tonight is Forward, Not Backward. Moving forward, not going backwards. I know that from time to time in life, there's a temptation, especially if you're going through a tough or a difficult time, to either stop or to have a desire. I don't know that we can really ever go back, but to have a desire to go back to the way things used to be. And I believe that tonight, by the time we wrap up the book of Ruth, again, going through chapter uh, four, that we're going to see that it's important for us to move forward. Danny, what do you mean by that? From time to time, we blow it. From time to time, either unintentionally or intentionally, we blow it. We do something. We say something. We, we wish that we could turn back time and, and not do what we did. We wish that we could pull the words out of the air. I know I've had this experience multiple times, but pull the words out of the air and force them back into my mouth. And I want to remind you of a couple of things from scriptures. I've been meditating this, on this all day. He was a prophet of God when God came to him in the northern kingdom and said, go to Nineveh. He was a man who knew God. He was a man who received the word of the Lord and obeyed. But this time he said no. And you know the story. He went in the opposite direction. Listen, it says that God sent a wind, a storm. And Jonah ended up in the ocean sinking down, down, down until God sent a great fish. Jonah would find himself on a seashore. Listen to these words from Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Listen to this a second time. As you sit here tonight, I want to remind you that you serve a God who speaks again a second time who doesn't walk out on us, but comes and walks with us. She was brought to the temple by religious leaders. Jesus was there early. He was teaching the multitudes and probably the court of the women. And they bring her in. They drag her in. She has a blanket wrapped around her because they caught her in adultery. They bring her in and they throw her down before Jesus. And they ask him what his interpretation of the law is in regard to those who commit adultery. You know the story. He begins to write in the sand, on the pavements, in the temple. And it says that they depart, her accusers depart from the oldest to the youngest. And she finds herself before Jesus. And he says, woman. It's important for you to know that's the same word that Jesus used with Mary at the wedding of Cana. And that he would use from the cross as he delegated care for Mary over to John. He says, woman, where are your accusers? Where are those who brought you here and said, what are you going to do with her? Are you going to let her off the hook or are you going to have her executed, stoning? And what did he say to her? He says, women, where, where are your accusers? And she said, Lord, there are none. And then he said these words. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. He walked with Jesus for three years. He was intimate with Jesus. He was in his inner circle. While he was the big fisherman, mighty and strong, and he knew how to fight and he knew how to talk. And he told Jesus at one point, even though all these, these are the other disciples, even though all these abandon you, I will never abandon you. I will fight for you. I will die for you. And yet on the night of Jesus' arrest, a little girl said, you two were with him. And three times Peter said, I don't know him. I don't know what you're talking about. I've never heard of him. A short time later after his resurrection, the fishermen would be with some of his friends and they would have 
fished all night, having caught nothing. And he would, they would be someone on the, on the shore of Galilee cry out to him, children, have you caught anything? And they would say, no, we fished all night. We didn't get anything. And he would take, he'd say, take your nets and put them on the other side. And as they did, the nets became filled. And Peter looks at John and says, it is the Lord. Immediately, he takes off his cloak and he jumps into the water and swims to Jesus. And remember that it was three times that he denied Jesus? And three times Jesus says, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? The conclusion of the conversation, Jesus told him, follow me. The same words that he had told him three years earlier. I I want you to remember tonight our takeaway is that God doesn't promise happy endings. He gives us new beginnings. Jonah, listen, Jonah received a new beginning. The woman caught in the act of adultery. Regardless of how the people felt about how Jesus treated her, he gave her a new beginning. Peter would receive a new beginning. And for some of you who are here tonight, or some of you who are watching online, or some of you, you need to know tonight that as we conclude the book of Ruth, that God gives us new beginnings. That there is no one that he says, what you've done is too great of an offense, he is the God who gives new beginnings. Listen to this. Naomi's story begins with a famine and three funerals. We conclude tonight with a wedding and a baby. Moab's bitterness, Moab's loss is tempered by a grandson. It's important for you and I to know that in real life she would be ambushed by sadness. Maybe when she saw a couple walking down the street holding hands or she looked at the calendar and it marked an anniversary, she would feel grief again. But in time, the unexpected waves of grief would lessen in frequency and in intensity. You see, the child that was born, as we will see tonight, his name is Obed. Obed would make her smile. There would be times when he would do something or say something that she might even laugh. Yes, you will laugh again. There's a saying that says, life goes on. It's just not the same life we used to have. Of his son's tragic death, Yale professor Nicholas Wolterstoff said, this is the quote, the world has a hole in it now. I shall look at the world through tears. Perhaps I shall see things that dry-eyed I could not see. As we begin tonight, I want you to remember a couple of things. First, life may have its moments. Life will have its challenges. But God writes the last chapter in our lives. Second, God will guide you through every step. David's great psalm says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Lastly, all seasons, every season, the good seasons and the bad seasons have an expiration date. Hang in there. Ride out the storm. I want you to remember that for you and I, for those of us who trust in Christ Jesus, that eternity means something to us. I I remember when my father was in the hospital bed and he would die. He called me to to his room and he he had me close the door and he goes, what's it going to be like? And I go, Dad, I, I don't know. I don't know, but I know Jesus will be there. And I know that you won't be sick anymore. And I know that I I know that we will see those who have believed and trusted in Christ. It will be a reunion of sorts. My friends, tonight, eternity speaks to you. Eternity speaks to me. On the day that Jesus died, they cried. On the day that Jesus died, their hearts broke. 
But his resurrection means that we will see a new day. I guarantee you, I don't know what you're going through, but you will see a new day. So tonight we finish the book of Ruth with a bridegroom. I want you to picture me with platform shoes, little bow tie, big hair, homeboy, big hair. I want you to picture a bride that I've known since I was 15 years old. She was 19, beautiful then. Oh, you got to know she's beautiful now. We conclude with a bridegroom, a bride, and a baby. The date was April 26, 1975. I will never forget my anniversary, for you see it is engraved inside this wedding band. I didn't know Jesus, and I was a, a little bit, and that's an exaggeration, I was a little bit impatient with the minister and all the things that he said we need to do. He says, well, you know, if you get married in our church, you got to go through our classes. And I said, don't need to do that, but okay. And he, he began to talk about marriage and what that represented. And I wish I could tell you that I was studious. I wasn't, I wasn't studious in school, nor was I studious in those classes. But I'll never forget that day in that church in Vista when Wanda's father brought her down the middle aisle. It, it, it's, 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 it is as if I thought I knew her until she became my bride. And then now for 47 years, yesterday was the 26th, for 47 years, in all honesty, there have been good times. Oh, my friends, there have been bad times. There have been times where things have been quite lean and times when we did quite well, but I believe it's all a part of the story. Well, I'm going to go ahead and read to you the first 10 verses in your notes again, the bridegroom, verses 1 through 10. So let's get, it, let's get going. Ruth's redemption, the totality of chapter 4. I want you to think about this. The bridegroom initiates redemption. The bridegroom initiates redemption. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, that is at the threshing floor that Pastor Jared covered a couple of weeks ago, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, and sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took 10 men of the elders of the city, this is Bethlehem, and he said, sit down here. He's kind of bossy, isn't he? And so they sat down. Then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. That is her deceased husband. So I thought I would tell you, tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and these witnesses and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know. For there is no one besides you to redeem it. And I come after you. And so Boaz is initiating. He's making this thing happen. Boaz is a man of character. He's a man that when he tells you something, you have an assurance that it's going to happen. He's not a man of a lot of words. He's not a man of, you know, of, of, of eloquence, but he is a man of his word. And, and so this redeemer, this near kinsman says at the end of verse 4, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, he's going to drop the bomb on him. The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Verse 6, then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself lest I impair uh, my own inheritance or put my, my land in jeopardy. Take my right of redemption for yourself for I cannot redeem it. And now the writer explains a custom. Verse 7, now this was the custom in former times in Israel, suggesting that it didn't take place any longer. concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting or witnessing in Israel. 
So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal, and the idea is that he gave it to Boaz. Verse 10, now Boaz speaks to those that had gathered at the city gate. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place or hometown. You are my witnesses today. As we make our way through this first section, the bridegroom, As I said, he initiates. He's making something happen. He is an, listen to this word, he is an advocate. He is an advocate for two women. Two women who aren't even present here. He is speaking on their behalf. He is speaking up for them. And remember, he has position within this community. He is using his position to elevate two powerless widows. You know, as you sit here tonight, I want you to know this. Jesus is your advocate. Jesus is your advocate. You are never alone. You have someone who stands with you. You have somebody who stands beside you. You have somebody who stands like Boaz did at the gate. He stands in heaven representing you. You know... You may interact with various people or business and you don't feel like you're heard. You may have this in a relationship with somebody else. You speak, but you feel like they didn't hear me. While while I was speaking, while I was pouring out my heart, they were formulating a response. I haven't been heard. I want you to know tonight that you have in heaven someone who hears you and stands in your behalf. Jesus stands with us. Jesus defends us, especially when the enemy, when Satan accuses you. You're not by yourself. You stand in the shadow, Psalm 91 says. You stand underneath the covering of the wings of God Almighty. And the arrows of slander and condemnation will never touch you. They fly in the air, and his wing, if you will, they bounce off of it because he covers you with his righteousness. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, Paul, uh, John writes, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. You have an advocate with the Father. You have a representative in heaven. The word advocate is interesting. It is the same word that Jesus used when his disciples were concerned that he, would, he, he, he was speaking of, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed by a friend. He said, I'm going to be tried and then crucified. And on the third day, I am going to rise again. And this communication caused the disciples to be troubled. The idea that they would not be with Jesus any longer really troubled him. And he says, I want you to know it's important that I go to the Father because then I will send to you a comforter. That word comforter or counselor is advocate. In the original language, it means one who will walk alongside of you. Wasn't that the disciples' great concern? We will be by ourselves. Wasn't that their great concern is where will our teacher go? Where will our master go? Where will our Lord go? And Jesus said, I will send to you an advocate, a parakletos. Let's get back to our story here. The setting at the first part of the story, not at all of chapter, but these first 10 verses, is at the city gate. This would be compared to court where you and I go to court when we drive a little too fast and we need to go down there and tell them that we weren't, quite, we weren't driving quite as fast as the, the honorable officer said we were or we have to go make amends in some way. The city gate was where? 
legal transactions took place. I want to take you back to when, when Pastor Jared taught in chapter 3. Ruth comes in by Naomi's advice, and she stands hidden in darkness watching as Boaz eats, and then he goes over and he lays down by the grain, likely there to protect the grain from anybody taking it. And it said that he had had some wine, and he was laying down and probably snoozing, having worked hard all day at the threshing floor. Then it says that she went over and she lifted up his cloak and, 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 and that in the course of the evening, listen, in the course of the evening, he awoke. All that happened, my friends, under the cover of dark. All that happened by design. If the cover of darkness protected her reputation at the threshing floor, listen, Boaz protects her reputation at the city gate when the sun was shining bright. It says that Boaz goes up because Bethlehem would have been on an elevated on a small hill. So we see that Boaz in verse 1 initiates the redemption process. And, 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 and he's at the gate anticipating, waiting for this gentleman to come by. And so he sees the man come by and he invites him. He says, as we read here, turn aside, friend. Sit down. Two things I want you to think about. The writer says that the relative came by. In the same way that Ruth, as she went out to the fields to glean, happened upon Boaz's field, the near redeemer happens by the city gate. I want you to think about this. God's providence is in view here. Now, I don't know what you're going through. You're, you know, life may be good. Maybe yesterday you celebrated an, an anniversary. Life may be good. Maybe, maybe everything's coming together. Or life may be challenging right now. It may be hard to sleep all the way through the night. There may be some relationships that are, you know, there's a little bit of tension. It's difficult. But I want you to know that regardless of your situation, God is working. We saw God working and bringing Ruth to Boaz's field. We see God working and bringing the near kinsman redeemer by the city gate. And I want you to know that God is working in your life. He's working in circumstances and situations, even though you and I are not aware of it. Second, the man's name is omitted. Some think that since he refused to carry on the name of the dead, his name is also suppressed. So the Boaz, well-known in the community, verse 4, calls 10 men. Interesting that it would re the, the rabbinic tradition required that for there to be 10 men in a community in order to have a synagogue, that there would need to be 10 men in order to have a service or observe a Sabbath in the synagogue. So Boaz calls these 10 elders to serve as witnesses to this transaction that would take place. He wanted to ensure that everything that took place regarding the redemption of Ruth and Naomi was legal and above board. Ten witnesses. Ten, listen, ten proven men. From time to time, in speaking with friends, a lot of my friends have churches, and we have this conversation about the pandemic. Well, you know, Danny, things became very political in my church. Or, Danny, people had strong opinions about this or that. And, and, and this is the conclusion we come to, and it really isn't going to be a conclusion. And, Danny, there became fractures and breaks in relationship. And then the question is asked, maybe you can help me understand this. Did the pandemic reveal cracks in relationships? Or did the pandemic cause cracks in the relationships? Were we already isolated? Or did circumstances cause isolation? Ten men of the elders. Do you have an elder in your life? I'm just like you. Danny Boy stays up late at night watching his favorite preachers on YouTube. I'm in my little condominium going, amen, brother, preach it, you know, yawning, because I don't stay up too late. 
I have my, the podcast that I appreciate of men and women who preach the word, who teach the word with clarity. I get built up. I get esteem. But I don't know them. I don't know them. They don't know me. When I was a youth pastor in a small community, Fallbrook, there were students that went from one youth group to the next, because we met on different nights of the week. And so on, you know, Tuesday we would be at the Presbyterian Church, Wednesday they would be at Calvary Chapel, and maybe on Thursday they'd be at the Baptist Church. And I, I, I always said, that's great, that's good, that's okay. I go, but you need a youth pastor. He said, Danny, what do you mean by that? I go, if you're in trouble at 2 o'clock in the morning, who are you going to call? Not Ghostbusters, but who are you going to call? My question to you is, if there's a problem at 2 o'clock in the morning, who's the elder that you're going to call? And I'm not necessarily talking about somebody who has a position at a church. An elder would be that individual for us guys and gals that is spiritually mature. That's some, that person that can speak into my life truth. Not everybody can do that. I mean, you can come and speak truth into my life. I'm just not going to listen to you. This is a person who I know and they know me. And if you're sitting here tonight and Danny say, saying, Danny, I don't have an elder, well, then let's make that a goal for 2022. And if you're sitting here tonight and you said, Danny, if anybody knew me and what I was really like, they wouldn't want to be that point of accountability in my life. Let's work on that too. Remember what I said with the title? Let's move forward. Let's don't move backwards. Let's move forward when it comes to having somebody in your life who loves you and cares about you and will walk with you through a difficult season. Let's move forward. I want to read to you from Leviticus chapter 25. This is the law of redemption, and it's a couple of verses, and I'm reading it to you because of the role that it plays in the transaction tonight. Leviticus 25, I know, it's the most exciting uh, book of the Old Testament, right? Leviticus 25, verse 23 through 28. The land shall not be sold into perpetuity, for the land is mine. This is what God says. The land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners, listen, with me. And in all the country you possess, all the land that you possess, you shall allow a redemption of the land. You shall allow the land to be purchased back by the original owner. If your brother becomes poor, circumstances happen, and he has to, out of need, sell part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. The terminology can mean brother by blood, but it can also mean brother, a brother Israelite or Jew. If a man has no one to redeem it and then himself becomes prosperous and finds sufficient means to redeem it, let him calculate the years since he sold it and pay back the balance to the man to whom he sold it and then return to his property. Allow him to buy it back. Verse 28, but if he does not have sufficient means to recover it, then what he sold shall remain in the hand of the buyer until the year of jubilee. In the jubilee it shall be released, and he shall return to his property. You see how important the land of Israel was to God? He said, the land is mine. He's saying, you and I are sojourners. We're making our way through the land. You and I are working this together. I, in my mind, I see visions of Eden. The garden is mine, but I give it to you to steward. And we will do this together. Quick comment here on the year of Jubilee. I want you to see seven cycles of seven years, doing the math, 49 years, every 49 years. So then on the 10th day of the seventh month, which just happened to be the day of atonement, 
The trumpet was blown throughout the land. In every community, there would be the sounding of the trumpet. Marking it as a year of redemption. Listen to this. Listen to this. At the sounding of this trumpet, all debts, all debts were forgiven. They were canceled. Slaves were released. And as this portion, the law of redemption says, all land was returned to its original owner. Now get this. During the year of Jubilee, that 50th year, nobody worked. The land lay fallow. It would still produce because of the seed that was in it and the rain that would come. But for a year, the people in the land would experience a Sabbath. Again, looking back to Eden, the seventh day. Just a couple of thoughts here before we move on to the law of the liver at marriage. Jubilee, my friends, pictures our redemption. You and I have been redeemed, right? You understand that? We've been redeemed. Jubilee pictures our redemption. How so, Danny? Jesus has set us free from the power, the dominion of sin and the penalty of sin. While Jesus was on the cross, he defeated Satan. He defeated the usurper. And while he was on the cross, he bore our sins. He paid the debt. He redeemed you. You not only have an advocate in heaven who argues your case, you not only have an advocate in have, here on earth with you who gives you the power to say no to sin, you have a redeemer. You have somebody who has redeemed you. Romans 8, 2 says... For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law or the principle of sin and death. Secondly, our debt has been paid at the cross. Colossians 2.13. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and sins in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. If I haven't lost you yet, I'm going to talk a little bit about the liver at marriage, which should be of interest. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, you might wonder, where does this word come from? The, the original word or the root word is, is Latin, uh, liver, which means a husband's brother. You'll see why I'm, what I mean here. So in Deuteronomy 25, beginning in verse 5, it says, If brothers dwell or live together and one of them dies and has no son... The wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son, the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother that his name may not be blotted out in Israel. And really the concern here is that the family name would continue on. The family name would continue on. So in verse 4, Boaz says to the near kinsman, buy it in the presence of those who are sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. And this is at the threshing floor that night, or probably as, 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 as it was approaching morning, early morning when it was still dark. This is what Boaz told Ruth. Go home. Take this grain. Go home. Today I'm going to make this happen. Today I'm going to make this happen. So she gathers her grain. It's still dark. You see nothing but shadows on the road. Listen. And she makes her way home. And she tells her mother-in-law. And her mother-in-law says, everything he told you, everything he told you, he will do. I don't know if you know how important it is for us to be people of truth. I don't know if you know how important it is for us to be more like Boaz, to 
to be men and women who speak truth in love one to another and not lie and not deceive, not work the edges, not use people for our benefit. I don't know if you understand what I'm saying, but it's critical. Not that we're perfect and not that we don't have moments of weakness. Hear me. I remember when my daughter was attending a Christian university. And from time to time, I would have the opportunity to go sit next to my, my daughter in the bleachers of this university's gymnasium. And these young people would come out with violins and pianos and they would worship. This, this, this gym where they play basketball and volleyball and all this stuff became a sanctuary of sorts. And I'll remember one day when out from the side came a very petite lady. And you could tell by the way her hair was fashioned and her dress was, she was like, she was perfectly dressed. And especially somebody like me who, you know, English is a challenge, right? And, and it's tough because it's my first language. But anyways, she's, she comes up and she opens her Bible and she reads a passage. Her name was Elizabeth Elliot. And she said to the students, I'm glad that you're here. I'm glad that you're at this well-known Christian university. And then she, she said, without missing a beat, she goes, you know that plagiarism is a sin. Plagiarism is stealing someone else's intellectual property and claiming it as your own. And you could have, you know, basketball bleachers, right? Hundreds of students, right? I looked at my daughter and I go, you could hear a pin drop. We need those voices in our lives. But Danny, nobody's perfect. Absolutely, man. Nobody's perfect. Listen to me. If we are not people of truth, we are the ones who suffer. But I got an A on the paper. We are the ones who suffer. We are the ones who lose sight of our Redeemer and our Advocate. Verse 5, he says, The day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite. So he speaks up for her. If the law of redemption kept land in the, in the family, then the law of the leveret marriage allowed Elimelech's name to possibly continue. That is, if a son was born and to have an heir who would own his land. So the idea is that Elimelech's family's name would continue and that the land would stay within the family. Verse 6. After agreeing to redeem the land, he backs out. That is the near kinsman redeemer when he learns that he must also list Mary Ruth. And some people say, well, why? And there's a bit of speculation as to the why, but I believe this is the reason. It is possible that he would have to borrow against his own land in order to purchase Naomi's land. But if Ruth had a son, the land would return to Naomi. We just read through the law of redemption. He basically could not afford to purchase the land without jeopardizing his own land. And then the guy, don't know if it was the left shoe, don't know if it was the right shoe. He said, here, here you go. And Boaz takes it. Boaz holds it up, goes like this, goes, <laughs> waves it around. Everybody knows, no, I'm not going to put on my shoe right now. The idea of giving his sandal to Boaz symbolized Boaz's right to walk on the land. Boaz would take possession of the land like, listen, like Abraham and Joshua before them. Abraham in Genesis 13, 17 says, Arise, God said, Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, and I will give it to you. Everywhere you step is yours. Joshua would do the same thing in Joshua 1.3. Every place the sole of your foot will tread, I have given to you just as I promised Moses. 
Ruth's redemption. Let's go ahead and look at verses 11 and 12. A community includes the bride. The bridegroom initiated redemption here. A community, Bethlehem, includes the bride. Verse 11, then all the people who were at the gate and the elder said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house, or speaking to Boaz, like Rachel and Leah, who built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in, in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, who Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. It's interesting. Just a, a little tidbit here. Ruth went from being a foreigner in chapter 2, verse 10. She went from being an outsider. She went from being a Moabite to in chapter 2, verse 13, she becomes a servant. She goes from being a foreigner to a servant to being a maidservant in chapter 3, verse 9. But here we see her as an esteemed wife. Remember, we're moving forward. We're not moving backwards. We're moving forward. As much as we want to go back, we refuse. As much as we want to stay still, we refuse. We move forward. The leaders of Bethlehem affirm Ruth's redemption with a blessing. Their words reach back some 900 years by comparing her to Rachel and Leah, two sisters from whom came the majority of the patriarchs of Israel. Interesting to note first that, that Rachel is mentioned first. And Genesis 35, 19 tells us that she was buried near Bethlehem. Also, Rachel was initially barren. That is, she couldn't conceive or have children. But God would bless her with two sons. In a sense, too, and we've made mention of this. I won't harp on this too much. But Ruth was married to Malon for 10 years. 10 years without having a child made her legally barren. Can you imagine Boaz's love and character that he would marry her in order to possibly carry on the name of Elimelech. I believe this speaks only more to his character. Then they say to Boaz, may you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. Or through your marriage to Ruth, may God bless you and multiply your family and may you be well known. That is, may your name in the same way that you're allowing Elimelech's name to be carried on, then may your name be carried on. May your house, verse 12, become like Perez. The tribe of Perez had settled near Bethlehem. There was a connection. And I just want to say a couple of things about Tamar. You know the story. She experienced injustice at the hands of her father-in-law, Judah. Her story reveals a patriarch's disregard for his daughter-in-law by refusing her, refusing to treat her fairly. She then tricks him into having a son. That's where Perez comes from. Judah did not have godly character, but Boaz does. One last thing before we move on to the last section. And Naomi and Ruth wait. They're not present. They don't see Boaz initiating redemption. They don't hear a community embracing Ruth. Listen. And they wait and wait. And some of you are sitting here tonight are waiting. You've done everything you can do. You've put your case in the hands of the Redeemer, in the hands of your advocate, and you wait. First John chapter 3, verse 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, that is when Christ Jesus returns, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. As he is pure. And in anticipation of Jesus' return affects the way we live. It affects the way we live. It affects the way we treat people. It affects the way we spend our money. It affects the way we live our lives because we live in anticipation of Jesus' return. Lastly, Ruth's redemption, the baby who introduces hope. The bridegroom initiated redemption. A community included the bride, and now we have the baby who introduces hope. Verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, that is, he married her, and she became his wife. And this was quite a celebration, I'm sure. 
Maybe not quite like Danny and Wanda's uh, wedding 47 years ago, but, you know, they're still talking about it, I'm sure. And he went into her, that is, he had intimacy with her, and the Lord gave her conception. The Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son, the desired outcome. Then the women said to Naomi, bless, and there's, there's a transition here, no longer at the city gate, we're in somebody's house. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child, the infant, and laid him on her lap and became his nurse, his nanny, we might say. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David, or David, King David's grandfather. Now these are the generations of, of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amenadab. Amenadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Je- Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. There's a couple of things to look at here and we'll be done. The story, the story concludes with a woman, listen, with a woman whose life was devastated by loss, who described herself as leaving Bethlehem to Moab full and returning empty. Hear the story. Hear the story. A woman who got caught up in God's current of providence, and he moved her to the place where her empty heart became filled. The story ends with us seeing Naomi and Obed together. It says that of Ruth that the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. This is where hope is fully realized. I want to be clear here, especially if you've suffered loss, you'll know what I'm about to say. Obed does not replace Elimelech, Malon, or Kilion. No one will. The son represents a new day and an opportunity to move forward. I want you to know that it is right to honor the past and that memories can serve as comfort. But we, my friends, are to move forward. And to move forward requires trust in Christ. To move forward requires courage in the face of pain. And we are to anticipate something new. Verse 14, in contrast to the sadness Naomi expressed when she returning to Bethlehem, she is now blessed by the women of the community. Verse 14, there's reference to a redeemer. Theologians, scholars believe that Obed, the child, may be in mind here because of the reference in verse 14 to this day, pointing to the child. There's a view of the future here. Obed would care for Naomi through her old age. He would, as we see in verse 15, be a restorer of life. That means, listen, that life had been lost, and yet he would restore life, that he would be a source of hope, a nourisher in your old age. When Joseph's brothers returned to Egypt and he revealed who he was to them, They expected retaliation. They expected him to treat them the way they had treated him. But in Genesis 50, verse 21, Joseph says, So do not fear. I'm not going to retaliate. I'm not going to get even with you. I, listen, I will provide for you and for your little ones. Thus he comforted them. He comforted them and spoke kindly to them. And that's what we have here in Obed. We have God providing for this woman through the course of her life. In verse 16, she will care for the child. I see more of a nanny here, a de facto mother. 
I see the child growing up in her home, maybe sharing time in both homes. I see this as an expression of Ruth's love. Just a couple of thoughts and we'll be done. It is very unusual for the women of the community to name Obed. This was something that was given to the father. We see the picture in John the Baptist when uh, Zechariah scratches his name down. His name will be John on a piece of, uh, with, with a piece of uh, coal. But here the women share in naming of the child. Obed means the serving one. He would serve his grandmother. And he would be the father of Jesse, as it says here, the father of David. The writer's intent is to establish, establish a lineage in, in Israel's king, for David. The throne of Israel for David would be the right, because he came from the right family, the right clan, and the right tribe. Let me close with a word of application. We'll be done. Thank you for your patience. There are four, four words I want you to think about. Loyalty, willingness, obedience, and redemption. This week, I want you to think about these words. I want you to remember Ruth's loyalty to Naomi. Remember, through the course of these four, four chapters, remember that Ruth was loyal. Remember that Jesus is loyal to you. I want you to remember Ruth's willingness to enter into the harvest, that is, to glean. I would ask that you would be willing to enter into the harvest of your redemption. I want you to remember Ruth's obedience to Naomi's guidance. Obedience is really the mark of a believer, isn't it? And then lastly, remember Ruth's redemption that was secured by another at the city gate on her behalf. In Psalm 126, verse 5, David says, Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our midweek revive service held Wednesday evenings. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.